Hello. Welcome to this new Uvula audio bookcast. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you will forgive us for the employment of that rambunctious Hawaii Five-O theme, but we wanted something bright and fast that suggests some of the adventure that this new podcast will bring. Starting with this bookcast, we will be presenting over a number of weeks, Divers Down, Adventure Under Hawaiian Seas. Divers Down was written by Hal Gordon. The book has been long out of print and is very hard to find now but it is prized as one of the best young adult books from the 1970s. It is a remarkable introduction to Hawaiian culture and language, as well as a very good primer on basic scuba diving techniques. I have to tell you that as a kid, I was absolutely enthralled by this book, and when I came across a copy, I couldn't wait to introduce it to our listeners. I think you and your family will enjoy it. The plot of the book concerns Kip and Julie, summer student employees at the Makapu'u Oceanic Center in Hawaii. On the floor of the nearby ocean lies Kane, a huge stone idol, and an invaluable Hawaiian war canoe which sank while bearing that idol more than a hundred years before. The young adults are determined to bring back both the canoe and Kane to the surface for archaeological study. Of course, the native Hawaiians living nearby would rather this not happen, and a bit of conflict ensues. And now, divers down. A note from the author. This story takes place at Makapu'u Oceanic Center, 15 miles from Honolulu, Hawaii. It is a real place, the home of Sea Life Park, the Oceanic Institute, Makai Undersea Range, and the Oceanic Foundation, as described in the story. All place names are real, as are Makapu'u ships Westward and Holokai. Mr. Taylor A. Pryor, known as Tap Pryor, is a real person. The characters, while typical in many ways of the young people employed during summers at the center, are entirely fictional, as are persons other than Tap Pryor. If any of the characters in the story resemble real persons, the resemblance is completely coincidental. The story, too, is fictional, even though the background is real. Chapter 1. The Golden Reef Kip Morgan drifted upward from the warm depths of sleep to the sounds of two minor birds squabbling under his window. He opened his eyes to the red-gold sunlight of early dawn, pouring into a room that was not his own, and he came fully awake with a surge of excitement. He was not at home in Connecticut. He was at Makapu'u Oceanic Center in Hawaii. Yesterday afternoon, he had become part of the most exciting ocean science and engineering center in the United States. Kip smiled sleepily. He was a very small and unimportant part of the famous Hawaiian Center, just one of two score summer employees. He didn't even know yet what his work might be. It could be no more than routine chores. Even so, it was the first big step toward his ultimate goal, to become John Kipling Morgan, Jr., Ocean Engineer. He threw the covers back and stood up, stretching his six-foot length toward the white ceiling. Because he had hurried to Makapu'u the moment school ended, Kip was earlier than most of the summer group, and the sole occupant of a six-man bunk room. A rattle of dishes told him he was not the only one awake in the dormitory cottage. He grabbed his kit and headed for the bathroom. Within minutes, he was washed and dressed, his unruly dark hair as neat as it ever could be, and the sleepiness gone from his hazel eyes. In the dorm kitchen, a compactly built brown boy, about two inches shorter than Kip, was breaking eggs into a frying pan. The boy waved an egg at him and smiled a welcome. Aloha, buddy, 
Come have chow. Who are you? And how many eggs? Kip Morgan. He shook the outstretched hand. Two eggs, please. Basted. I'm Sato Punaloa. Grab a plate and tools and stick some bread in the toaster. Milk in the reefer. Coffee in the pot. Where from, Kip? Norwalk, Connecticut. How about you? Said Kip as he rummaged for silverware. From the Big Island. Sato saw Kip's questioning glance and added, The island of Hawaii. I'm from Kia Lakakua. That's where the Humuhumu Nuku Nuku Kapuo go swimming by. Kip showed his bewilderment. You're from where? Where the witch does what? You mean you never heard the song? Sato Punaloa spooned the bacon fat over the eggs with the artistry of a French chef. It's about my hometown. I'll say it slow. Ke-a-la-ke-ku-a. Where the humu-humu nuku-nuku apu-a-a go swimming by. The same being a little trigger fish. You can see one in the reef tank at Sea Life Park. You been there yet? Thanks for the language lesson, Kip said with a grin. I didn't get in until last evening, so I haven't seen much. I flopped into bed as soon as Mr. Davis assigned me a bunk. The toaster popped, and Kip put the slices on their plates, while Sato served from the big frying pan. Kip poured milk for both, and they pulled chairs to the table. Breakfast and dinner would be eaten here in the dorm while lunch on the run, usually at Sea Life Park. Kip would share housekeeping, including a turn as cook. Sato spread a slice of toast with strawberry jam. So what's your thing, Kip? Fishes? Porpoises? Engineering. I hope to be assigned to Mackay Undersea Range. How about you? My family raises mullet in some ancient ponds on the Big Island. I work at the Oceanic Institute to learn how to do it better. I guess that makes me a biologist. Spelled fish farmer. Kip nodded. He knew the Hawaiians had farmed mullet for centuries. And he asked curiously, Are you a real Hawaiian? Sato grinned. My father is native Hawaiian and my mother Japanese-American. But we're all Hawaiians if we're born here. Even the Howleys. What's a Howley? That was how it sounded. You're a Howley. Once that meant stranger, now it means white man. What's more, you're a Malahini. I don't know enough to know when I'm being insulted if I am, Kip said with a grin. A Malahini is a newcomer. An old-timer is a Kama'aina, which means child of the land. Sato waved his fork. Stick with me, stranger. I'll teach you to speak like a native. Uh, first, better show me a humu whatsis. Seriously, Sato, what's it like here? Kai! That means great. Finest bunch of folks in the world. Shape up. They'll knock themselves out to teach you more than you learn in years of school. Goof off, and you get plenty pilikia. That's Hawaiian for trouble. What do the summer kids do? Depends on what they're able to do and what needs doing. The more ability and experience a kid has, the bigger job he gets. Some end up doing their own research, and others ride idiot sticks. Shovels. Kip hoped an idiot stick wouldn't become his summer equipment, but he had to admit he had no special skills or experience, well, except diving. Sato's comment wasn't reassuring, and Kip asked, How long have you been here? This is my third summer. The big boss, Mr. Pryor, gives special treatment to a few Hawaiian kids. Most of the mainland kids came here once, then it's someone else's turn. Sato had managed to finish breakfast without interrupting the conversation. He carried dishes to the sink and washed them with quick efficiency. I have to relieve the watch at Brittenham Lab at 7 sharp. Gotta hurry. There won't be many people around today, and Mr. Davis goes into town on Sunday. So if you need anything, come to the Institute and I'll try to help, okay? 
That's plenty okay. Thanks, Otto. Kip's smile was warm. He liked the Hawaiian boy. It was a good omen, making a new friend the first thing. Less than ten minutes later, Kip had cleaned up the kitchen and made his bed. He could hear a gentle snore from the room where the dorm supervisor, Mr. Davis, slept. Moving quietly, he walked out of the cottage door and into the bright coolness of early morning. He stopped at the top of the steps to look at the breathtaking view. Since his last year in junior high, when he had first read about the Makapu'u Oceanic Center, he had dreamed of coming here someday, without really expecting to make it. He still had a feeling of unreality, as though he had been suddenly transported into the aerial color photo of Makapu'u he had cut from the cover of an old issue of Undersea Technology magazine. The center was on a shelf of land within the curled tip of the jagged Kulau mountain range. At Kip's back, a sheer green-clad cliff rose like a mighty wall, and in front of him stretched the Pacific Ocean. The cottage dorms where the students were perched like alpine dwellings on a slope of weathered, overgrown talus that had crumbled in eons past from the great cliff above. The cliff curved like a protecting bastion around the center, then bent sharply seaward at Kip's right to form the great bluff of Makapu'u Point, He could see the white lighthouse perched high above the foaming sea, marking the southernmost tip of the island of Oahu. A notch in the high bulk of Makapu'u Point showed where the Kailani Aneole Highway came through from Honolulu, 15 miles away. The road wound down to sea level, swinging in a curve around the outer edge of Makapu'u Shelf. To his left, the cliff crowded toward the sea. The shelf narrowed until there was barely room for the highway. Beyond the narrowest place, the cliff swung gradually inland again, and the highway went into the residential town of Waimanalo. Makapu'u Oceanic Center was isolated on its green shelf of land by cliffs and sea. There was only room for the center. Kip hadn't had much experience with oceanic laboratories, but he could not imagine another with so beautiful a setting. To his right, nearest Makapu'u Point, was Sea Life Park, an oceanic aquarium and science center open to the public. There were lagoons with whales, seals, seabirds, and porpoises. In one called Whaler's Cove was a replica of the sailing ship Essex, a reminder of Hawaii's once great place in whaling. Beyond, a circular roof marked a science theater. Another covered the reef tank Sato had mentioned. It contained a living Hawaiian reef with its myriad life forms. The park had a host of exhibits, some of Hawaiian life, others of the most modern ocean science and engineering developments. Next to the park, below and slightly to Kip's right, were the laboratories and tanks of the Oceanic Institute. Research was conducted at the Institute on all sorts of marine problems, from porpoise behavior to the aquaculture of fish. Across a driveway from the Institute was a one-story office building that resembled a Hawaiian ranch house. It contained the offices of the park, the Institute, and the Oceanic Foundation the parent organization of the whole center. To Kip's left, where the shelf narrowed toward Waimanalo, was the part of the center that held his special interest, the Makai Undersea Range. Its buildings rose almost against the cliff wall, as though daring it to tumble on them. Across the highway, a great L-shaped pier thrust seaward. More buildings were on the pier. Kip knew from his reading that one housed an incredibly complex control room the nerve center for the Mackay Range. The range itself stretched under the sea far beyond the pier to the ocean depths. In the harbor formed by the short leg of the L were boats and ships. 
One was a beautiful two-masted sailing craft, about a hundred feet long, that Kip recognized as the schooner Westward. Another was the ocean engineering ship Holokai, its name meaning seafarer. If Kip's dream came true, he would work on that pier with the Mackay engineers. But he would willingly push a broom, mop floors, or dig ditches just to be at Makapu. He walked down the slope and across the highway. His objective was a sandy beach where the waves rolled in. Kip could not recall a time in his 17 years when he was not within reach of salt water, but his own seas were the cold, dark North Atlantic and the Long Island Sound, vastly different from this marvel of tropical ocean. It was so clear he could see where green shallows gave way to blue depths and lighter patches where coral reefs lay near the surface. He plowed through sand, kicking it up in sheer pleasure until he reached the waterline. A low surf whooshed in, spending its energy on the beach. He walked at the water's edge until he reached an outcropping of black lava, worn to smoothness by wave and wind and pocked with holes in which tidal pools had formed. Bending low, he studied one of the little pools and was rewarded by the sight of a small fish, a spidery, brittle starfish, and a tiny crab scuttling for safety. The water was pleasantly cool to the touch and salt to the taste. Real, glass-clear seawater, unsullied by sewage-laden rivers or discarded trash of unthinking humans. Never before had Kip been able to swim or dive in such water, and he wanted, with an almost physical hurt, to feel it close over him. To wish was to act. He turned and hurried across the sand toward the towering cliff in the center. Maybe Sato wouldn't be too busy to swim with him. He trotted across the highway and up the blacktop driveway that edged Sea Life Park, then turned right on the spur between offices and institute. He paused briefly at the fence that guarded the tanks containing the institute's porpoises. Arching backs and fins tempted him to take a closer look, but a sign warned that only authorized personnel were allowed in the tank area. Sato was in the institute's Brittenham lab, feeding tiny fish in a series of small aquariums. Baby mullet, Sato explained. We hatched them a couple of weeks ago. Come outside and I'll show you their parents. Under a porch-like roof were large wooden tanks, their rims about waist-high. Each held a score of big streamlined fish, mullet grown at the institute. I'd like to catch one of those on a fly rod, Kip said admiringly. Sorry, Sato shook his head. They're herbivores, browse on algae and other plants. Won't take a fly. Anything I can do for you, Kip? I have to start logging data as soon as I get my finny kids fed. I guess you can't come for a swim then. Maybe after dinner tonight, not sooner. Kip swallowed his disappointment. Okay, I can see you're busy. I'll be on duty until five, Sato explained. But I'll make it up to you later by teaching you Hawaiian-style surfing. It's a deal. Sato went back into the lab and Kip walked slowly along the line of buildings. Inside an open shed door, he saw scuba tanks lined up next to a rack of big gas bottles used for filling the smaller tanks. He went in and examined one. It was marked with the initials CM. He didn't know what the letters meant. There were fins and extra weight belts on a shelf, but no other gear. He guessed the Institute divers kept their personal gear locked up. Kip turned away, taking out his frustration on an innocent plum-sized pebble that he booted down the driveway. As he reached the tanks, a porpoise leaped out of the water and splashed back. 
The sea beasts seemed to enjoy themselves. So would he if he could only get into the water. Well, what's wrong with going in alone? He demanded of a Kiaway tree. He was an experienced swimmer who taught kids at the YMCA. He was a scuba diver certified by the National Association of Underwater Instructors, NAUI. His logbook showed 34 open sea dives and five in lakes and quarries. He could take care of himself in the water. He'd proved it. He found himself hurrying back to the dorm. Leaving scuba tanks in an open shed showed they were there to be used, right? Kip told himself that when a person didn't want something to be used by others, he would put it away. Makapu'u Center certainly must have equipment for general use, and no one would mind his borrowing stuff from an open shed. Tanks weren't personal items like regulators. He pulled his gear bag from under the bunk. He had brought everything he needed, except a tank, which he was sure the center would provide. Stripping quickly, he put on shorts. Then, one by one, he laid out regulator, mask, snorkel, weight belt, fins, life vest, pressure gauge, knife, and depth gauge. He debated over his pistol-sized spear gun, then decided to take it, purely for defensive reasons. He didn't know what he might meet in the strange waters, and the gas-powered gun hung in a holster and wouldn't interfere. Loading the gear into a canvas beach sack, he put on sandals and went back to the Institute. If he stayed shallow, he told himself, there would be no danger. If he got a cramp or vertigo, and he never had, he could drop gear, inflate his life vest, and pop to the surface. By staying above 30 feet, he would get nearly an hour from a single tank of air. He was in superb shape, so he wouldn't get dangerously tired. Spring football training had ended only the week before, and as a tight end on the offensive squad, Kip had gotten into peak condition. He could run a mile and not even breathe hard. Well, almost a mile. No one was in sight at the center, except for a guard walking near the offices. Kip waved and got a wave in return. The same man had been on duty when he had arrived. Inside the shed, he put his pressure gauge on the tank marked CM. The needle swung to 2,200 pounds, nearly full. It was equipped with a backpack and harness. He attached his regulator and swung the tank onto his back. With his bag under his arm, he headed for the beach, greeting the guard as he passed. Kip looked around as he got into his gear. Down the beach, a Hawaiian had arrived and was fishing with a circular throw net. Kip watched a few throws, thinking that the scene was like something out of National Geographic. Offshore, seeming closer to the clear air, was a small island. A larger one was about a mile away. A motorboat was anchored a few hundred yards off the Makai Pier in front of the small island, and on the pier itself he could see a guard enjoying a pipe and what was probably a container of coffee. There were no other signs of life. According to the diver's watch he habitually wore, it was not yet eight o'clock. Too early for much beach activity, Kip guessed. He set the movable ring on the watch face so he could keep elapsed time underwater in view. Carrying mask and fins, he waded in. The sea felt wonderful on his legs, but inside he was tense and uncertain, and he knew why. It had been pounded into his sometimes stubborn head, and he in turn had emphasized it to younger kids he taught that the first rule of water safety was never to swim alone. His scuba training had added, never dive alone, never. I'm a brass-plated nitwit, he said aloud. Having admitted it, he intended to go right on, 
The water was just too inviting for him to wait until he found a buddy, which might take a couple of days. Taking the tank bothered him too, although he had tried to convince himself that it was all right. The only way to quiet his outraged conscience was to drown it. He reached over his shoulder and turned on the air, then tested the regulator and found it working normally. Fins and mask on, Kip let himself fall forward into the waist-deep water. The sea accepted him with a joyous surge of coolness. The bottom was sand, coasting along slowly, Following the bottom contour, he listened to the reassuring sigh of the regulator as he breathed. For a few minutes, as always, he was entranced by the pure sensation of being enveloped by the water, by the sudden change from a heavy, gravity-bound land creature to a weightless fishman. He had an hour to be as free as a soaring gull, as much a part of the timeless sea as the little fish poking in the sand for tidbits. The water yielded to his passage, gliding along his skin, cooling it pleasantly, buoying him up effortlessly. The only sound was the soft, rhythmic bubbling of his exhalations. He finned along, slowly, easily, savoring each moment. He thought visibility must be a hundred feet, maybe even more. It was a marvel. In his home waters, twenty feet was sensational, and three feet was common. He reached a lava outcropping encrusted with waving algae. From its top, a crab extended warning claws. Kip stayed clear, awed. He was used to the blue crabs of the Atlantic, but this one was brown, and it could easily have weighed a dozen pounds. As the water gradually deepened, Kip sensed the pressure change and looked at its depth gauge. He was 12 feet down. He noticed that the fish were becoming plentiful. A school of yellow-striped grunt parted before him and rejoined in his wake. There were coral outcroppings on the bottom now, and he finned past a fan-like purple gorgonian and the reaching branches of a staghorn coral. Catching a glimpse of color at the top of his mask, he glanced up, then sucked in his breath so hard that his ears rang. Stretching across his path was a full reef, like a living golden wall in the filtered rays of the sun. His fins churned as he thrust the water toward the lovely sight. His breath became rapid. The many photos and motion pictures he had seen of coral reefs had not prepared him for this. It was beautiful beyond the vividness of color film, because its colors were almost unbelievably soft, and it was alive. Sea anemones, white, gold, and brown, weighed in a living carpet among a dozen species of coral. From a grotto in the reef, whiskers waved at him, and he moved close to a big spiny lobster that was peering nervously at the intruder. It would taste great, but this was a day for looking, not hunting for seafood. Kip finned downward, swallowing to equalize the increasing pressure. His alert eyes saw fragile shrimp, exotic sponges, purple urchins like extravagant horse chestnuts, and fish with shapes and hues from a psychedelic dream. He paused to exchange sullen glances with a green moray. The eel alternately thrust his head from a reef opening and withdrew it like a bashful dragon. Kip was enchanted, oblivious to anything except the wonders of the golden reef. He saw a pile of small shells on an outcropping and knew it was the junk pile of an octopus. Searching, he found him or was it a her, peeping shyly from behind a brain coral? 
The tiny creature could have sat comfortably in the palm of his hand. His questing finger was met by a delicate tentacle, and he grinned past his mouthpiece. A shadow crossed hand and octopus, and Kip turned on his back and looked up, and his heart slammed against his ribcage. It was a hammerhead shark. The outline was unmistakable. Kip clawed for his spear gun, then relaxed and smiled inwardly at his alarm. He was now 23 feet down and about 10 feet below the shark, even allowing for water distortion. The beast wasn't over a yard long, but small or not, he hated sharks. He'd been terrified by hammerheads bigger than himself while diving in the Atlantic. Kip pulled a shaft from its tube in the holster and secured it to the line on a reel under the barrel, then snapped it home into the barrel retainers. He removed the safety cap from the barbed head and looked for the shark. The little hammerhead was curious. It circled back toward Kip, moving downward. The boy knew it wouldn't attack. Sharks seldom tackle living creatures twice their size, but even though he tried never to harm most living creatures, Kip's motto was that a good shark is a dead shark, and that went for little sharks too, because of their unpleasant habit of growing into big ones. He flicked off the spear gun's safety as the shark neared. It wasn't afraid of him. It was going to pass directly overhead, an easy shot at less than six feet. Kip lifted the gun and followed the shark's motion, leading it slightly. It passed over, perfectly silhouetted against the surface. The jet of compressed gas drove the spear straight up through the underslung jaw and into the primitive brain. The shark sounded, diving for the bottom and leaving a streak of blood that looked purplish-green in the clear water. Kip tightened the drag on his reel as the creature thrashed about. The shark was finished, but its enormous vitality wouldn't let it stop struggling. Kip was suddenly conscious that somebody was yelling. Yelling? Underwater? He spun around with a violent twist and saw a slim figure arcing toward him. A girl with long dark hair trailing. He saw her eyes blazing at him through a wide vision mask. She held her mouthpiece in one hand while the other pressed a scuba com to her mouth. Kip's jaw sagged so that he almost lost his own mouthpiece. Murderer! The word was clear. As he stared completely astonished, she lowered the scuba com and took a breath from her mouthpiece and replaced the communicator and then yelled it again. Murderer!